You know, coming, coming up to 2024, I had to think about that, 2000 what now again? But some of us feel very inadequate. I'm one of those. That feels very inadequate for what I am praying for and breakthroughs that I am asking God for. Like, God, I can't. And, and I, if, you're, if you're saying those words, I can't, I want you to know that's okay. If you listen to the, the self-help books out there and the motivational speakers, you're never supposed to say, I can't. But actually, Paul says that where he can't, God can. And that is a beautiful place to be because it causes us to be completely reliant upon God. And I, I'm just going to encourage you that if that's where you feel that you are, that you're in a good place. But don't go saying, God can't. Because if God is wanting you to do it, whether you can do it or not, if he's truly wanting you to do it, where there is vision, there is provision. If you feel weak, that's okay. If you feel unskilled or unworthy or unable, that's okay. If God is saying to do, go in this direction, he will give you everything you need to go in that direction and accomplish what he's wanting you to accomplish. Amen, church? And so that's personally where I feel I am at is I'm just crying out to God for certain things and just saying, God, man, I can't, but I know that you can, so you make this way where there seems to be no way. Amen? I'm going to pray for our time together right now in the Word, and so let me, do just, let me just open up our time right now with that. Father, thank you for being here in our midst. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you actually indwell us and that you're our comforter and you're our counselor and teacher. And I just ask right now, as we look into your word, give us eyes to see, speak directly to our hearts, truths from your word, and may we not just walk away with information, but maybe be transformed by the power of your word. Encourage us then, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, how many of you remember the Gulf War? Well, some of you weren't even born. A lot of you weren't even born. Okay, I get that. But I was, I was there. I remembered. I was married. I had two kids by that time. And in 2000, excuse me, in 1991, August of 1990, Saddam Hussein, who was the ruler of Iraq at, the, at that time, invaded Kuwait. He wanted to annex Kuwait. He gave his reasons, but what they really, that, that sounded noble, like, well, hey, you know, they were a part of us in the past. Well, all of the, that was part of the Ottoman Empire, right? But no. He had, his real goal was to occupy Kuwait and steal its oil reserves. In, in 1991, Iraq was defeated and certain sanctions, weapons sanctions, were imposed on them that they did not follow. They constantly sought to hide things from the inspectors. In 2003, Iraq was invaded for violating these sanctions and Hussein was captured. He was charged with certain war crimes such as the extermination of 148 Shiite men and boys in the village of Dujail. Dujail. For killing between, and the numbers vary, 50,000 to as many as 180,000 Kurds in Iraq. For using 
the use of chemical warfare on his own people for horrible torture, starvation, unlawful imprisonments, and displacement of Iraqis that were attributed to his rule. Saddam claimed innocence in his court trial, got very heated, angry, and yelled at the judge and yelled at the people. He was innocent, and he was simply trying to protect Iraq from sedition. Those were, that's what he claimed. In December of 2006, Saddam Hussein was hanged by his own people for war crimes and crimes against humanity. To the day of his death, he claimed his innocence. Saddam Hussein was one of many who just did not understand justice. At least justice that was outside of his definition of justice. Church, we live in a day in which the topic I'm going to be preaching on lies outside of the reasoning of most of humanity. Outside of our definition of what is justice. We step back and when we hear sermons about it like you're going to hear tonight, there is this tendency to say that is just not just. Did I actually say that? It's just not just. Anyway, you understood it though. I'm going to read to you just a few verses in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read another verse from Revelation. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Luke. In Luke, excuse me, Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. I was actually thinking about preaching from Luke 12, but I chose not to. Matthew 13 is where we're going to go. But follow my words right now as I read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels that I preached on just last week, right? The return of Jesus Christ, the parousia, the coming, the second coming of our Lord. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of, of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who, are, who, who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And this is your hope, Jesus' return. But it says on that day that he returns, he will also bring swift and severe punishment, even what he calls everlasting destruction, to those who have chosen to rebel against him and not believe. He's going to do this as soon as he comes. Not a year later, not a thousand years later. He's going to come and he will bring swift judgment then, that day. He's going, to come, he's going to bring everlasting destruction. And those who do not believe will be shut out from the presence of God. It says also in Revelation 15, excuse me, 20, 15. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name 
was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The wicked will be cast into hell forever. Church, forever. That's a long time. There is something in us that says, but is this just? And um, we, we only ask that question because of our limited perspective. We kind of think, well, my goodness, 70, 80 years of doing wrong. Well, not like 100% of the time, but doing wrong. Warrants an eternity being punished in hell. And we say, that doesn't make sense to me. Now, can I just say that that even, by the way, on earth, that's not how we judge. It can take me 30 minutes, and this is a personal confession, I guess, 30 minutes to steal a pack of gum. I would do that as a kid. Walk into Hoist 5 and 10, walk around, take a grab. Take me about 30 minutes, and then I would walk out, and it would take me 30 minutes to steal a pack of gum. It takes only one second to pull a trigger and kill someone in first-degree murder. Who do you think will be punished more severely? The one who took 30 minutes or the one who took one second? See, it's not based on time. It's not based on how many sins. It's based on the severity of our sins. See, that's what we don't get. And can I confess to you, I don't get. Because I am a sinful, fallen creature. And as much as I want to distance myself from someone as horrible as Saddam Hussein, who is addicted and controlled by his sin, I too, one time in my life, was addicted to and controlled by my sin. I was a slave just like him. I may not have committed crimes against humanity like he did, but my sin was an offense Ultimately, not against humanity. Though, I mean, I did sin against people, but ultimately, it was against God. Saddam Hussein's sin ultimately was against God himself. It was against the perfect, infinite holiness and love of God. That's why his punishment is infinite. That's why, apart from Christ, my punishment, because my sin warranted it, would have been forever. It's not because I lived in sin for how many years, but because of the nature of the offense. Not how much, not how often, not how long, but the very nature of that offense. That's how we judge on earth. And the reason why it's so hard for us to grasp this idea that God would for any reason, cast someone forever into hell. It's beyond us because like Saddam Hussein, there is something inside of us that says, if I'm not innocent, at least I'm not that bad. Every unbeliever, just about, 99.99% would say, I may not be innocent, but I'm not that bad. And God would say, you are completely guilty. And you have offended my infinite holiness. And you have chosen from the day you were born to rebel against me. And church, there's something inside of us, even in our saved nature, that we still don't get. Because we cannot wrap our minds around God's infinite anything. Holiness, love, kindness, patience. We don't get it.
The mistake that we can make, however, is when we look into the Word of God concerning hell, because it rubs us the wrong way, because we don't understand the justice in it, we start with our logic that says, can't be, and there is this tendency to want to minimize or erase hell. And the only way that we can ever understand this truth is not make me or my mind the starting point. I have to make God's word the starting point. That's where I begin because I'm still messed up. I'm saved. My sins are washed away, but guys, I'm sorry, I'm still messed up. Sin still taints the way I think, the way I speak, and the way I behave. I'm looking forward to the day in which that won't be the case anymore. I still look through a glass darkly. But then I shall see face to face. I'll see clearly. I get it. When anyone stands before God at the end of this age, including the lost, unbelievers, rebellious against God, even they will say, I get it. They will stand before pure love and pure holiness and they will get it. So I want us to go through this difficult topic. I want us to be willing to start with the word, what does God's word have to say about hell? So follow me, Matthew 13. We're going to be looking at the parable of the wheat and the weeds and then Jesus' interpretation of it. Matthew 13, starting with verse 24. So I'm going to read through, through verse 30 and then pick it up in verse 36 and read through verse 43, okay? Jesus told them another parable. See, he just told them the parable of the four soils. The seed in that parable was the word of God. The seed is a little different in this parable, so follow with me. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Underline that word, highlight it, then. Then the weeds appeared. It doesn't mean then the weeds germinated. Then they were able to tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds. The Greek word here for weeds is zania, which basically that is a specific type of weed. Our English word would be darnell. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds, the darnell, come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Skipping down to verse 36. When he left the crowd, because he was speaking to the crowd, we find in verse 1 of this chapter, now he leaves, then he left the crowd, he went into the house, the disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field 
is the world and the good seed. See, the good seed now is not the gospel. Listen, the good seed stands for the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds, the darnell, are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, there's no more, Darnell, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears let him hear. And I'm going to assume that when he says, he who has ears, let him hear, and he's speaking this, not to the world, but to his disciples, he's basically saying, this is a hard saying, but if you're willing to receive it, then do that. This is a hard saying. This is a hard truth. Can you understand it? Can you get it? May we get it today. I want to just ask a few questions. And these are questions in which the world asks, but they come up with different answers than what the Bible does. Number one, when is this going to happen? Most people, because they feel so uncomfortable with this concept of eternal punishment of any kind, hell, they want to excuse it and explain it away. And, and I've gone on some websites and I've seen what they do, and you're... Wow, horrified, horrified. And these people claim to be Christians. They can't claim to be believers in Jesus. And they believe the word of God. But I'm going to suggest apparently they don't. The scriptures are relatively clear on this, whether we're willing to have ears to hear it or not. The time of this punishment, they say, is during our lifetime. See, when you go around and you hurt people, that is going to open up doors of anguish for you. That's going to come back on you, kind of like bad karma, some of them say. That what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. And so if you sow evil, that evil will come upon you. But it will come upon you, and your punishment will be in this life, not the next life. See, everybody, they get to go to heaven. You know, I mean, you, your punishment, that's not eternal fire in hell. Your hell is right here on earth. Have you ever heard that explanation before? What does the text here say? When will this happen? Jesus says in the parable, at harvest time. And then as we move into the interpretation, the explanation of the parable, harvest time is the end of the age. The end of the age is a long time in the future. It might be a year might even be less, or it could be many years, I don't know, but it certainly is not right now. No unbeliever right now, no believer right now is experiencing hell on this earth. We might say, wow, that was hell on earth. You know what? If, you've, if you ever experience hell in the future, that gets erased from your mind. Never would you ever say that. But people, they, they don't know what hell truly is. Oh, that's, that's like hell on earth. Man, I went through hell today. What? I, that's an expression, but people really believe this. 
you know, the, I did something bad yesterday or last week or last month, and now I'm paying the consequences of it. My heart goes out to, in, in the movie, I can't remember it, but I keep thinking Benjamin Moore, but that's a paint, right? The, um, anyway, his name's Benjamin, but in The Patriot, he says in the very beginning that he did something absolutely atrocious. He's narrating it. Mel Gibson plays the, the actor, the, the, the part there, Benjamin. And he says, I feared that my sins would find me out. And then he begins to live a life and two of his sons die. His wife has already died and he's devastated. Many people would say, yep, see, that's hell. I mean, it might feel like it. The remorse, the pain, the heartache, I get that. But I'm sorry, that's not hell. According to Jesus, hell will be at the end of the age. Not this age, not this lifetime, at the end of the age. Right now, Scripture's clear. It uses a different Greek word than hell, which would be Gehenna. It uses the word Hades to describe the place where the lost are thrown, cast into, when they die. So that when they die, their body goes into the ground, the righteous their spirits go to be with Jesus, be with the Lord. Scripture is very clear on this. But those who are unbelievers, those who are still lost in their sin, they die in their sin. Scripture says that their spirit goes to Hades. Luke 16, write that down, read it later. But Hades is where those who are lost, where their spirits are, and they're kept there being punished until the day of judgment. That's called the intermediate state. Not that that phrase is found in Scripture, but that's how we would describe it. That is the punishment or the blessing in this age before Jesus comes back and brings judgment. Okay? So where will hell be? Because for many, hell is here on earth. Not just in our time, but here on earth. Is hell on earth? Some have actually believed, well, it's, you know, when you go to heaven, you go up. When you go to hell, you go down. And so hell must be in earth, under the ground there. That's where the grave is. The Hebrew word sheol has a double meaning, just like the word Hades can. Sheol was simply either the grave or it was the place of punishment. So it had a dual meaning. All I'm suggesting is, hey, if you're going to go down, that's to go into the grave. When you are cast into Hades, that's not necessarily down. That is just in outer darkness. So where, Jesus is very clear. It is, it is not here on earth. Jesus says, you are actually thrown into a fiery furnace. Now there's an objection there by those who don't want to believe in hell, they say, you know what? Hell, this fiery furnace, it's just a metaphor for the punishment that they receive. It's not a real place. It's a metaphor. Well, let's get our facts straight here. You're aware that in a parable, 
we read certain figu of figurative language, like the field. See, that's figurative language. That's a symbol of what? Look in the text, the explanation, the world is a symbol or a picture, excuse me, the field is a picture of the world. The farmer, the one casting seed, is a picture of Jesus. This good seed is a picture or a type or a symbol of the sons and daughters of the kingdom. In the parable, it says that they are cast, that they are gathered up and burned. Because that's what you do with weeds. You take weeds and you throw them into the fire and you burn them up. Jesus now, in his explanation, he uses a term. That means as he's explaining the parable, he sees through the metaphor and the figurative language to say this, the seed, the good seed, is this. And this, in his explanation, is not metaphor, it's literal, it's the real thing. The good seed, that's you. Believers in Jesus, followers, disciples of Jesus. In the parable, they, the weeds get thrown and they're burned. What happens is Jesus explaining? He says right there, let me just give you the verse. <clears throat> verse 42, referring to those that will be weeded out of his kingdom, that cause sin and do sin, they... Now we are outside of parabolic or symbolic language. This is literal. They will be thrown into a fiery, excuse me, the fiery furnace. There's no metaphor here. There's no figurative language. Hell is like this huge fiery furnace. It burns. He actually uses this word again with regard to his last parable in this chapter, the angels will come concerning separating the good fish from the bad fish. He then explains this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. He's going to take the wicked away from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. That's literal. No symbolic language. As we read through scripture, we discover Jesus says that we should fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Now, just the soul or the spirit is cast into Hades. At the end of the age, death and Hades are cast into hell. The wicked are raised, their bodies re resurrected, and body and soul, they are cast into hell. Immortal, lasting forever. In this eternal fire. Everlasting destruction, Paul says in, that I read to you in Second Thessalonians. It's also called the lake of fire. The second death. The first death is a physical death. The second death is both a physical and spiritual death. And it lasts forever. Just like the fire of the burning bush would not consume the bush, so this fire will not consume us. It will last forever, though. Us meaning the world, unbelievers in Jesus. It says that they are cast elsewhere. It's, they're cast into outer darkness. 
people say, see, there you go. See, this fire is not real because fire gives off light. If hell, give, if hell is fire, then how can it be outer darkness? So let me just tell you, the fire that hell contains is different than the fire that you experience. Oh, it burns. That is one thing Jesus makes clear. It apparently just doesn't give off light. It's different because it's, it's feeding on body and soul, burning body and soul. And then lastly, even in this verse 42, it says, where, that's the place. See, hell is a place. Heaven is a place. Earth is a place. Hell, the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. We weep generally... I mean, when I was a kid, I wept when I fell down and skinned my knees. And generally, I'd skin them pretty bad. But then as a kid, I generally don't cry when I get hurt. What I do weep about is things that touch me. Here, I would recommend it is sorrow and regret. They're weeping over the very fact that they had this possibility, this privilege, this opportunity to follow after God, and they refused. Now follow me. Romans 1 is so clear on this. There's something inside of man that wants to suppress the truth like hell. They want, no, it's not true. No, there is no God. This only the material is what is real. Only the material that science can weigh and calculate and figure out. Only what you can see. That's what's real. That's what exists. This thing, the soul, God, no, they don't exist. And there is something within us called sin that represses, that seeks to suppress the truth. And here's the truth. God's, he says, God is that truth. And everyone that is ever born can understand that there is a God. That they can understand, and it's clear in how God created this universe to discover his power, his mighty power, his everlasting, eternal power, and his divine attributes like love, holiness, and justice. We can understand that and see it clearly. We don't have to sit back and think, eh, let me think through this a little bit more. It's clear to everyone that there is a God, that his attributes are clear, that when I look around in this world, I see beauty, but I also see something that is decaying, something that is not right. And I believe that if we, that it would be fair to say that we can say God created the beauty and that he is beautiful, but something has oppressed and attacked his creation. And I look inside of myself and even my own spirit, scripture says, because the law is written on my heart, it condemns me. There's something wrong in me. See, everybody can figure this out. There's something wrong in me. We call it sin, whatever the Bible calls it sin, whatever they want to call it. They know that they hurt people, they offend them, and that there should be punishment on certain crimes, on certain offenses. We get this. We understand it. 
we can understand that we therefore in our sin have somehow impacted God's perfect world. And if I have done that against God, just looking in our own courts, I must be deserving of some kind of punishment. That in itself should drive everyone who is ever born to their knees and say, God, there is something wrong in me. I offend people and I must be offending you. Show me how do I build this relationship back with you. And I truly believe that in God's grace, he will reveal truth to that humbled soul. No man, Romans 1 says, will stand before God with an excuse up their sleeve. No one. We're all guilty. Truth be told, we all know that we're guilty. We're just so busy suppressing it, or the world is so busy suppressing that. <clears throat> Consequently, at least in hell, it will, we will be fully realizing what we have done, what the world has, what the lost has done, and there will be, oh, there will be regret forever and ever and ever. There will be, excuse me, there will be weeping, which is regret forever and ever. There will be gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth, I mean, for me, when I get hurt, I don't cry necessarily, at least that I can remember. I grind my teeth like that. And that's exactly the picture. There is weeping and groaning, the, the pain, the regret forever. Why? We've asked the question, well, what questions have when, where, and why? And here's where it boils down to. Jesus says, because you cause people sin, cause people to sin, our sin causes people to sin, and we have sinned. That's what he says here. That's why they're weeded out of the kingdom. That's why they say, I cannot have you in my presence. You have never been changed by the power of the Spirit of God. You have always been rebellious against me. And apart from Christ, that is what sin is. It's rebellion against God. And he is obligated to discipline, to punish sin. God cannot, it is impossible for God to wink at sin and that sin not be punished unless someone has taken that punishment upon them. And that was Jesus. And so when we, when we ask this question, why? Can I just suggest that maybe when, we're, when we hear about hell and we ask why, that maybe it's because we just don't grasp the holiness and the love of God. See, when, when we sin against a man or a, a woman, okay, that's deserving of punishment, and we can kind of understand that. But now when you do something atrocious to a child, like a pedophile, there is something within you, am I not right, that rises up and says, absolutely not, and we want severe punishment. Is that not true? Why is that? Why would we want greater punishment when someone offends just a person like us, a, an adult, but when it's a child? No, severe punishment. 
because there's something of justice in us says when you take advantage of someone who is innocent, you deserve a greater punishment. So here we have offending man, an adult, offending a child who's, I'm going to say they're innocent, but every child is sin, but you understand what I'm saying. And now when we offend God, who is completely innocent, that throughout your life, the life of the world, he has been extending his arms saying, come to me. I love you. I have so much in store for me. Step into this relationship with me. See how much I will bless you. See how much I will forgive all of your sins. Why run from me? Why what run from me? Why do you want to choose your own way? Follow me. Pursue me. See what I have in store for you constantly over and over, just like he did with Israel. And the prophets cried out to them, look, repent. See the God who rejoices over you with singing. See what he has in store for you and yet you turn your backs on him constantly. That is what the world does. Constantly turning their backs on him. Church, I, I am not in any way ridiculing them. See, that's exactly where I was. And I cried out to God. I said, God, I need you. And in that moment of clarity said, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Make me a new creation because there is, there is evil in here. And, and I cannot do anything but that. I want to do good, but I can't. I read Romans 7 and I agree with Paul that there is something in me that wants to do the right, but just can't. And so when I was 14, I made that decision. That is a possible decision that everybody can make and throw themselves upon the grace of God. And because they refuse to do it, and because they give credence and, and open the door to rebellion and fight God always and never give up, they choose their way regularly, not God's. We are destined for punishment as a result. Can I just give a word here? When we're talking about regret, weeping with regret, even Christians can still be overcome with regret. Even Christians can wallow in the regret. Don't get me wrong. I regret a number of things that I have ever done. But because I am now in Christ, I realize even more than 10, 20, 30, 40, 45 years ago, my forgiveness in Christ. I get it a little bit more. And I've made a choice. There's no need to wallow in that regret. I have been truly forgiven. All of my sins washed away. And I stand before God and he welcomes me with loving arms, open to welcome me. He doesn't ridicule me. He doesn't furrow his brow and say, yeah, really? You want me to accept you? Never. Because of what Christ has done for me. Christ took my punishment. Christ took the wrath of God that I deserve. Consequently, there is nothing but love. Do I pain the heart of God? Do I cause him grief? Scripture says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Yes, I can grieve the spirit of God. But I never stir up his wrath. We can wallow, though, in that regret. Never fully grasping the depth of Christ's forgiveness. 
Sometimes we can feel actually deserving of life's hardships, deserving of all of the evil that comes upon us. And because we refuse to accept that forgiveness, we think that we should be punished, even though God says no. And we think ourselves to be a better judge than God. You know what, God? I deserve this. I deserve to wallow in this regret. What I did was so wrong. I am such an idiot. I am this. I am that. You, you've been there, church. You know what I'm talking about. And yet, God says, no, none of that. None of that is true. So, but apparently, we think we know better than God. I know myself better than you, God. I am worthy of all of this judgment and punishment. Maybe I'm going to have eternal life, but here on earth, whatever you want to do to punish me, I deserve it. So be it. I am this horrible person, and we just swallow the lies. And I do not find that anywhere in my Bible. I am a loved, blood-bought child of God. Sins completely forgiven. Receiving an, an inheritance I, have I am unworthy of. I don't deserve it. But I am receiving it because of Jesus. And so consequently, it's easy for us, even as Christians, to wallow in regret and remorse. And I'm going to tell you right now, that will oppress you and hold you back from all that God has for you. As we're looking ahead to 2024, your remorse, your regret can hold you fast, lock you in position so that you do not move forward feeling unworthy, feeling incapable, feel, well, you know what? I don't deserve God's grace. So if I do something that I feel like I can't, why should I expect his grace to help me do something? Why should I expect the God who does the impossible to do that which is impossible for me? Why should I expect that? Here's why. Because your sins are forgiven. You're a child of God, and you have received an inheritance. It is yours. That's why. And it's not because of what you have done that's good. But the reason why you don't walk into it is because you're fixed on what you have done that's wrong. That which is under the blood of Jesus, that the cross has taken care of. And so I'm going to encourage you, as, as we're looking at this whole idea of regret and weeping, it's not too far for, from the Christian to deal with that right now and wallow in the regret. Christ came to rescue us out of that. Not just our sin, but the guilt. He rescued us out of the guilt. You are no longer guilty, church. You stand in Christ, and the more that you get that, the more that you feel this freedom you don't take his grace as license to do more sin. In fact, you are so overwhelmed with gratitude. You look at the coming year and you say, God, what can I do for you? How can I serve you this year? What can I give? What can I sacrifice? It would be small in comparison to what you have done for me. Show me, lead me. What do you want me to do? If I think that's too hard, but if you want me to do it, God, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it. I'm going to step out and I'm going to move forward. That's what he's called us to do. I'm going to skip a certain section here. I want to bring the, I want to wrap this up. I want to just extend a caution to unbelievers. And if you're a believer, then I want you to hear what I'm saying. 
And when you have an opportunity to minister to the lost on this topic, remember these words. Because an unbeliever, someone who is still lost in their sin, me before the age of 14, you before whatever age, because we are not experiencing the present consequences of our sin, does not mean that there will be no consequences. That's a, that's, that's a deception. Just because someone has committed a crime and they've not been caught, they're going to keep doing that crime. Well, they've not been caught. I guess I can keep doing it. And they feel as if they're unapproachable. They feel as if they'll never be discovered. And then they are found out. Trust me, my friends. God knows exactly what's happening. And your sin, at the end of the age, your sin will find you out. Also, maybe we feel a little bit safe and secure. We, meaning the world, feeling safe and secure. Feeling as if we're kind of above that. As if maybe God's not going to judge or punish because we're making so much more money this year. We're experiencing greater success. Success can blind you. It can make, give you a high that doesn't allow you to see clearly, doesn't allow you to see the consequences of your wrong behavior. Or perhaps you're accumulating more luxuries than ever before. You feel good about yourself. You feel content and you feel safe. See, this is natural. So many people in the world experience that. And as a result, they feel, maybe in the first example, they feel above the law. Now here, they feel as if they're above God's discipline. It's not happening to look. If anything, look what God is doing to bless me. And so God is extending his, some, a measure of his grace to you, and he is blessing you. And that's wonderful. But it's intoxicating you. It's blinding you. You can't see. God clearly says that if you die in your sin apart from Christ, this is what awaits you. Don't feel so safe. Don't feel so comfortable. Don't feel so good about yourself. Only in Christ is there a difference. The short-sightedness of this generation that can't see beyond their success is truly setting themselves up for destruction. I want to just close with this. If we were to read the next two parables, and there are only three verses, listen to what Jesus is now making this transition. What a horrible topic, so, you know, talk about hell so much, right? But see, for us who believe, there's hope. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he, had it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the parable of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Church, when the world wants to make that decision to follow Jesus, when I had to make, when you had to make that decision, you discovered that there was something of the gospel, something of the kingdom of God, something about living for him, something about following Jesus as his disciple that was, of, that was of significant value, so much value, you were willing to forsake everything in your life to follow him. 
And apart from that contrast of what God has to offer, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, we must recognize that we sell everything we have. We turn our backs on the, on the things of this world, the kingdom of this world, and we say, I don't care how much money I've made. I don't care how many luxuries I, care, I have. I don't care how much success I've obtained. None of that compares to following Jesus. This is the pearl of great I will sell everything for it. You see, it's all in or not in at all. There's no middle ground. There's no straddling the fence here. I'm either going to follow Jesus by turning my back on the world and pursuing him, or I am going to stay here because I can't serve two masters. I'm going to love the one and hate the other, despise the one and love the other. But I can't serve. You can't serve two masters. Church, It says in that first parable, we do it with joy. Man, an excitement that wells up within the heart of the lost. I am going to follow Jesus. It's not, well, you know what? I really don't want to go to hell. So I guess today I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. Kind of stick that in your back pocket like fire insurance. That's not what this parable is about. Where's the joy? See, when you're convicted by the Spirit and you're shown the truth and the light dawns on you, it's like, I want Jesus more than anything in this world. That's where he wants to bring the lost to. Amen. I want to close in prayer. Father, I I just ask that as as, as we have listened to these truths, grip our heart. Father, don't allow us to escape these truths. Don't allow the enemy to oppress us fearing that we're going to be judged by God. In Christ, there's no judgment. In Christ, there's no fear of wrath. In Christ, there's blessing. In Christ, there may be discipline to lead us back to him. But in Christ, there's joy forevermore. In Christ, following Jesus, that is the pearl of great price. That's the treasure hidden in a field that is of such infinite value We give up everything just for it. Father, I pray, take these words and seal them in our heart that we would pursue you with everything in us because we are all in. In Jesus' name.